This is the Software and Technology Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. The more diversity of thought and the more diversity of background of the people working at tech companies, the better. So you have the data scientists, many of them might come from a very technical background. And then you've got the business side. And these are two separate worlds. And they have a very difficult time communicating and understanding what their priorities are. The blockchain idea was around 91. So about the time that the Terminator 2 movie was coming out, the same idea of in the digital world, we need verifiable documents. Everything's downloaded. Let's boot up the system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Market Scale Software and Technology Podcast Show. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And boy, is it good to be chatting about some innovative software and tech today. Really, we're focusing more on the people than the technology, which I think is intrinsic to what makes this industry so great. Uh, Of all the industries, this is the one that really populates itself with some of the best content, in my opinion. I'm always interviewing people that are blowing my mind with such innovative ways to expand on their passions. And really, the innovation in other industries comes from great software and technology. So this is the lifeblood of the B2B world. And today's episode hits on a variety of different aspects of the tech world, but they're all centered around up-and-coming companies led by stars who are each motivated and passionate for technology. We're going to get to hear from Zach Sharon, co-founder of Secret Sauce, a technology that empowers young tech-hungry professionals to enter the right company for the start of their career. He's telling us about the tech exodus from Silicon Valley and why it's bringing more opportunities to young aspiring tech professionals. We're also getting a great look at the blend between cryptocurrency and traditional financing, and we're going to get that from CEO of Arca, Rain Steinberg, who's looking to create a new digital financial standard. But first up, we're going to hear from Nick Freud, co-founder of Campus Reel, a company that's demystifying the college tour experience through crowdsourced video from students. A great example of a company that almost went in a VR direction, right? Trying to chase that up-and-coming emerging tech, but instead built a strong network on passionate people and expanded their platform on that. Freud's a cool last name too, right? And it's exactly what you think it is. Let's dig into this week's episode, starting with an interview with Campus Reel. Nick, great to have you on the Software and Technology Podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, Really happy to be here, Daniel. Yeah, great to have you on. And, you know, I think we got to start with the sort of base level thing here, which is your last name. The elephant in the room. Yes, right. Nick Freud. Now, Freud, it could just be a coincidence, but surprisingly, this time around, it's not a coincidence. You are related to the Freud, which I love. Tell me a bit about that craziness. Yeah, so uh, this is actually one of the first times I'm putting this out there on more of a public platform, but Sigmund Freud is my great-great-grandfather. Uh, it's it's something that I take a lot of pride in, and, and the family takes a lot of pride in. And and one of the things I've noticed from sort of coming down that lineage of Freud's is that I think having such an iconic 
person in our family has held the rest of the members, the new generations coming to such a high standard. And if you look going down the family tree, you'll see that there's just this ambitious gene that I think we've gotten from being related to someone who's considered to be so iconic in uh, the Western world. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that you probably hear the name Sigmund Freud in pop culture daily uh, definitely sets the bar high. Yeah. No, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that when I was growing up, uh, I essentially only knew who Sigmund was based on what my parents told me. It didn't really connect with me what his kind of impact was uh, on the Western world. But only recently I've come to realize how much of an iconic figure is almost a a pop figure. Uh, It's almost there can't be a week that goes by where I don't hear his name mentioned in a rap song or on a TV show or a movie. So it's always kind of a treat to have that come up and be reminded of where I came from. Definitely. Well, and it's cool that you are taking your own path and, you know, taking the Freud name, but not necessarily following in those same steps. Instead, you are finding something else to be innovative in and solving, you know, your own problems and finding an issue that you're passionate about and digging into it. And so that issue specifically is inefficiencies in the college search process. So what about the search process really turned your head and and made you, I don't know, tick, right? This is something that you felt passionate about and you wanted to solve. Because I know at least when I was going through the college search process, it was tough deciding which colleges I was going to spend the money and time to go visit when they're 600 plus miles away. And I have high school to finish. I have um, tests and homework to turn in. And not to mention, I mean, you know, family isn't loaded. We can't just be buying flights left and right to go visit every college we want. So, so what about that process really inspired you to try to find a solution? Yeah, no, I think you introduced that really well. And I think even just to take a step back beyond the single problem that we're trying to address with Campus Real as it stands right now is that when Rob and I began looking into the college search space, the first thing that we realized, and to kind of put it bluntly, is that the college search process really sucks for every stakeholder involved. Uh, one of the things that we really didn't appreciate when we ended up interviewing high school students to try to figure out how to address this pain point is that we could tell they felt judged throughout this whole process because the college search process leaned so heavily on data, bullet points, and rankings. The students kind of tend to see their own value on those terms as opposed to all of the positive emotion that should be associated with this transition from high school to college that anyone who's been through the college process knows that at the end of the day, the rankings and the numbers and the SAT scores, they don't matter. It's about the experience and the friends and the memories. So at the outset, we really wanted to just shift the emphasis in college search towards those positive emotions. And then to get a little more specific about what we wanted to solve at the outset with Campus Realist, we realized that one of the main inefficiencies is in the college search process is that the only way to get an honest and authentic understanding of your college search options is to go visit in person. But in-person campus visits are time-consuming, they're expensive, they're geographically dependent, and you do need a certain level of family support to be able to go out on all these trips. So there ends up being hundreds of thousands, if not millions of students every year who are marginalized in this process. So with Campus Real, what we wanted to do is use authentic student-generated video content to make it so that any student anywhere in their world could come to our platform and get a really honest and authentic understanding of their college search options without being forced to break the bank on all of these campus tours. Right. Well, it's great that you're focusing on the authentic side of things because when you're on that campus tour, whether you're thinking of committing to that college and it's April before you graduate high school, or you could be a junior just taking your PSAT and just beginning the process, something about that college tour really... I don't know, it really puts you in that place. It really puts you in the shoes of a college student at that university. And you get to feel what it might be like to 
commune with peers, to uh, go to class, to just sort of soak in the environment. And that's something that is hard to replace. So it's interesting that you went in the direction of crowdsourcing authentic video from people on campus to kind of get that real life, hey, this is what we live every day feel, instead of maybe digging into another technology that is trying to do this, which is VR. And I think VR is sort of the go-to tech for if you want to immerse yourself somewhere. Um, People are investing in VR applications and solutions. It's really setting the bar high, but you didn't decide to go on that route. So what steered you in the other direction of taking video from people on campus and using that to really sell the experience? Yeah, no, I think it's a really great question. And it's interesting. We actually ended up pivoting in to this crowdsourcing approach. Really? Uh, we originally started off, as you as you laid out, with the idea of virtual reality college campus tours. We mm. knew that VR was a big buzzword at the time, and the kind of narrative behind it was that it just puts you in the location that you're trying to be. So we figured this would be a great application in the college search space. What we came to realize, and, and Rob and I actually had a conversation with one of our now advisors that we'll never forget. We were about six months into our virtual reality college campus tours, And we sat down with one of our advisors who let us know that one, virtual reality was not as consumer-facing as the media might make you believe. And we kind of sat down and thought about that and realized that we don't know anyone with VR headsets. Um, And we we imagine that it's probably a few years behind where they wanted it to seem. But the, the second big issue is that it wasn't a scalable approach. Um, you know, we in our model were trying to get 15 schools on the platform by the end of 2018. We're approaching 250 colleges with this crowdsourcing platform. So as, as a business model, crowdsourcing just kind of seemed like the intuitive approach. But more importantly, and as it relates back to the college search processes, we noticed that there was this budding culture of college students who created YouTube vlogs uh, mm-hmm. a day in my life to kind of take students through what it was like to be a college student at their respective schools. And they were doing this completely intrinsically. They knew that this is something that the market needed. And we kind of took that idea and ran with it. So we realized that authentic video content is the best way to capture the vibe of a campus. It's not possible to capture an authentic vibe with something that's produced kind of inherently. Um, and our hunch ended up being right. We found incredible digital storytellers on all these campuses who have really taken it upon themselves to kind of communicate the vibe and take these students that they don't know yet inside their intimate day-to-day experience and show them what it really means to be a part of their campus. So we couldn't be more proud of the product that's that's come to fruition. Yeah, I love that. I know if I was doing the college search process right around now, I would love to see some vlog style content that really showcases a day in the life at my favorite university or my favorite potential university. It's a really cool idea. And I'm interested on the technology side of things, how you manage to pull it off efficiently um, with both the submission of the video and then also crafting a platform for people to access that video um, that feels intuitive. And, you know, you can sort of log or subscribe to certain schools. What sort of route did you try to take when setting up the back end of Campus Reel? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, you know, it's something that would probably take an hour fireside chat to really right. dig into the weeds of it. But I think to answer sort of the core of the question, um, one of the things that we came to realize after we got in our first round of content and began to focus group test it is that video content is phenomenal and it's really great at capturing a vibe, but it doesn't tell the whole story. There's so much information that these kids want to know about 
uh, the different videos and where it's taken on campus that you can't necessarily capture in a selfie style video when the student isn't trained to know everything about the school. So the first thing that we thought we had to do is, okay, how do we contextualize all these videos to really bring them to life? And you'll see when you go on Campus Real, no video stands on its own. There's detailed descriptions standing next to them. We tag exactly where it happens on campus. So you're able to sort of get your bearings locationally. And then we also have found a way to pull in Google Street View to create what we think is a more authentic version of virtual reality than a pure virtual reality platform. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is we spent, I'd say, about a year and a half, and we're still learning every day, what is the most effective way to capture this type of content? And right. at one side, it's you know Robin and myself auditing thousands of videos that come in and trying to pick out what's effective and what isn't. But the other side, and I think it's something that we're both really proud of, is that these student ambassadors who are creating the content for us are, are pushing the envelope on their own. So one student creates a tour that is kind of pushing the threshold, the, the new ambassadors who come on, see that tour, see how engaged and authentic the user is able to be, and they kind of push the envelope forward. So it's this, this exponentially increasing quality of video that is both tech-backed, but also there's this personal touch and this learning curve that comes along with it. Well, Nick, I really want to thank you for coming on and giving some insight into Campus Real. I'm looking forward to chatting with you in the future. I don't think this is the last we're going to see of Nick Freud. We'll definitely be digging into some more aspects of technology and how we can use it to solve some other issues in ed tech um, and really just making the college experience accessible for everyone. So thanks, Nick, for coming on. And, you know, I, I'm definitely honored to be in the presence of a Freud. <laughs> yeah, it was a pleasure, Daniel. Thanks for having us. So again, that was Nick Freud. I don't think we've heard the last of him. We'll definitely have Nick come back on the podcast soon. If anything, just to get more information on that great last name and the relation to the great Sigmund Freud. I mean, what an honor to be interviewing someone in that family line. And it's cool to see that he's innovating in this space, taking his own route. Love it. All right, so for our first feature, MarketScale host Shelby Skurhawk sat down with a company founded this year, 2018. It's still fresh in its development, but passionate about solving a real issue in crypto. There's still a lot of uncertainty around cryptocurrency, especially when it comes to investing. Investors aren't keen on the risk. However, CEO Rain Steinberg and his team at Arca are aiming to combine centralized finance with blockchain technology, resulting in the first hybrid token approved by the Securities and Exchange Commission. A really, really interesting company and a passionate individual. Here's Shelby Skurhawk with the story. Rain Steinberg, co-founder of ARCA Funds, likens cryptocurrency to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. This was a film that was light years ahead of its time, but enigmatic in its reception. I mean, quite simply, audiences didn't know what to do with this cinematic portrayal of the convergence of man and technology. And really, in a lot of ways, that describes the challenge that people face with cryptocurrency today. Steinberg writes on Medium, like the middle chapter and most remembered section of 2001, Humans' interaction with new technology in the form of HAL 9000 and its terrifying conclusions were mirrored in crypto's development. Technological advance is not always straightforward and can be fraught with danger and unanticipated consequences. I wrote that article, I think, at the beginning of the year, and an evergreen piece. Uh, a lot's changed even from then. 
the place I was writing from then was coming from a heavily regulated financial service industry, uh, specifically founding Wisdom Tree, the underpinning fund structure of ETFs, heavily regulated, everything you say about them, you have to be very careful if you're going to market them, you have to have a Series 7, to the crypto space where the big players um, really were not either positioned the way they thought about things or even their understanding of financial service law. And it was still at a time when there was less clarity about which laws would apply. A lot of confusion there. But what I was quite certain of was the people that were in this space were not particularly well suited to be fiduciaries of other people's money. And this is a little different than other tech disruptions in the past, um, because when you're talking about wealth and money, it's more than disrupting information or flow. Um, this is either years of people's work, of savings that's represented or possibly multi-generational. Um, so there's a whole different level of care um, that goes around disrupting an industry that's guarding that type of value. And so you say people that weren't necessarily qualified to be managing those sorts of things. I guess explain that. When you think about financial services and trust in general, the whole promise of cryptocurrency and blockchain is this trustless intermediary, this idea that you don't have to give away your power or trust to verify transactions. The financial service industry is based entirely on trust. That's why the names that are around you know, are generally around for very long periods of time. It takes a long time to build up brand. And their entire value proposition is trust us with your money. Somewhere in between there is the way, you know, the evolution of this industry is going to occur. The people that are innovative and disruptive in this don't generally have that fiduciary mindset. When you're a fiduciary for somebody else's money, you really have to, outside of just the compliance um, and the legal framework that you have to adhere to, but anybody that's a bad actor can violate those things. Uh, but you really have to treat that as almost a sacred bond between like a client and you. And until we have a completely trustless area, there's still people that you're still trusting um, these upstart companies. So even though Bitcoin is trustless and you can't call anybody there and it's not a uh, centralized company, these other ICOs and the other service providers around them that have sprung up in the ecosystem are. Um, so you still have to have a very, you know, fiduciary first, client first mindset and safety and caution above all else. Just the area where these people came from, usually kind of an anarchist, kind of tear the system down approach, doesn't really fit well with that fiduciary safety mindset. Would it be fair to say then that a lot of the forerunners, the bleeding edge technology, they are technologists, not financial institutions? Yes. And when you say technologists, even that is interesting in this space. This is kind of even a backwater technology wise to where you would think about the powerhouses that have driven uh, technology and fintech forward. Um, the nature of the space, the difficulty um, that it takes to program in the decentralized world, the kind of um, gray to murky reputation that crypto has also keeps the very talented developer talent out of this space. And they think very hard before leaving Amazons and Googles and, you know, very established firms for this space, even on a reputational sense as well. So the, the same issue that you have in financial service people that are in here, you also have that on the development side as well. 
So with all of those challenges, both from the personnel to the end consumer, being able to trust a trustless system, how is the average person able to quantify this in their head? I mean, what's the first step to really blending crypto with traditional finance mindset even? Sure. You, you hit it really right on the head there. It's even before the technology piece and wading through like what's going on. It's really understanding a mindset of personal responsibility first. And that's actually one of the harder um, and more ingrained pieces outside of pipes aren't there and it's not institutional ready and things like that is people aren't ready to be their own custodians. Um, society is not ready to have that power. Not that they're not capable, but when you do not have that footing and you do not behave that way and you're in a world of always being able to recover your passwords, there's always some other authority to turn to. The power uh, that you have here, that unseizable nature of a Bitcoin, you know, that if you have your seed words that you and you had a wallet with a billion dollars in Bitcoin, you could walk around the earth with it impossible to seize forever until you reseeded it. That's incredible power. But at the same time, it's great responsibility, Spider-Man style. Um, if you lose your words, um, you're out a billion dollars and there is nobody, there is no helpline, there is nothing else. So that even outside of the technology and its nascent state and that mindset for society is we are no longer trending towards the centralizing of power. And a lot of things have you know, demonstrated that there's danger about that. You know, these social media scandals, uh, people are waking up to the centralization of political power. All of a sudden, the devolvement of that power is back on people's front burners. But they, to understand what that really means is you are your own security. You are your own custodian. So it changes the way you have to behave. So even before understanding the technology, understanding that kind of libertarian almost footing is really important. That's an interesting take on it because we do place our trust in others, but others that have earned the trust of many, many others before them. So what do you see then as the very first iterations of people starting to trust crypto and blockchain and it kind of moving into more of a, I guess, a, a traditional mindset, if not acceptance? The way we're approaching it, um, and I think this is appropriate. So I come from the world of Wisdom Tree, which is an exchange traded fund company where the products were, you know, for every type of investor from the most sophisticated uh, to the newest retail. And the safeguards are there because the system is very developed. This system is not developed yet, but that's where you see the, the opportunity. Um, we've designed our first set of products, which is a suite of hedge funds um, for qualified institutional buyers and high net worth individuals in the hedge fund structure. And I really feel as a investment vehicle, so that's looking at crypto as to invest in, it's really only appropriate for sophisticated investors right now uh, because the volatility, the danger around keys and things like that, it really is great. So outside of where you know people normally think about investment concerns is like, what is this manager's investment philosophy? You know, What is his, his style? Um, how does it do in these markets? Um, there's a whole other host of questions that people aren't even used to asking on crypto. It's what's your security? Um, how do you do custody? Um, who has access to your keys? Like people just assume in a centralized system that all those things are the same, and they generally are for most 
you know, traditional funds, an operational issue can be completely catastrophic on a crypto fund and completely wipe out a great investment. I think the way you bring more people in is even though we have this very grand view of this decentralized, trustless future where you have to uh, not hand over any of your power, to get there is not going to happen by just willing it. You really have to create incremental steps that allow people to use the structures that they've grown accustomed to now as a gateway. And that's our our second product, which is a U.S. Treasury fund uh, backed cryptocurrency. So instead of being backed by dollars in a bank, uh, we're being backed by U.S. Treasury funds and we're using the same fund structure as an ETF. But the wrapper will be blockchain and will interact natively with the blockchain environment. If anything ever happened to ARCA, nothing would happen to the underlying assets of that fund. So all the safeties and securities of the real world, but allowing them to interact in that crypto space and under a regulated SEC format. This is truly then that bridge to a the, the new world versus the old standards of safety and security and all of those things that people have come to trust. That's my question. Like in the pie in the sky view about crypto and, and blockchain, what concerns you about people's understanding or lack thereof um, about how this works and, and this whole trustless system? Is there too much that's being promised? Yes, uh, I would say absolutely. Um, the promise piece was really driven by whenever you see an asset class run up 10 to 20x in a year, um, it is going to garner all sorts of attention, both good and bad. All of a sudden, it's seen as a get-rich-quick scheme, um, a vehicle to entice people. It, It brought great energy to the space. Those promissory things of Bitcoin will be worth a million dollars by such and such a time. And uh, this kind of wild, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk, Magic Beans uh, type of promissory stuff is not really helpful. But at the same time, it is helpful for people that want to lay the groundwork and move slowly. I'm fine with all of that because uh, we will continue to talk about doing real things very slowly and moving the ball down the field, you know, one micro inch at a time. But the reward, I think, and this is where you really will see this, is in a trustless society or some of this power for the first time flowing back to people from centralized authorities is actually incredibly valuable and necessary right now. You're not really going to see a true move um, to this asset class until you see some economic disruption. We're starting to see some cracks in the system since the, the last financial crisis, which was, you know, what spawned Bitcoin. So this is the first time right now where we're starting to see real emerging market debt issues. Um, You're seeing real uh, euro crisis come back. And there is a point, I truly believe, where our debt-fueled, you know, central bank, unaccountable, all of those things, there's eventually, there's a limit to that. And people are definitely going to want to have some sort of allocation outside of that system when that occurs. So your original um, simile or metaphor about cryptocurrency to Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey, and how it becomes an allegory for, for man and technology and all of the changes that are inevitably going to happen. Do you think the allegory is still valid? I do, actually. The That's another piece. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. The star man at the end, that combination of man and technology, um, that beautiful allegory. It really is interesting, even though it's not as grand as that, but the combination of 
finance um, and legal and technology um, in this space is really remarkable because prior to this, you know, securities had a certain functionality, they worked in a system, technology was over here, but now you're giving security um, and financial products the innovative speed and power of the technological revolution. And it really is bringing up massively interesting things that you just wouldn't, I, I, was, I wasn't expecting that it would be so hard to bring together um, development talent, financial service people. They're just not, from both of those worlds, the great ones, you know, the big centralizers are Google, Amazon, Facebook. These are not people that are, you know, dying to have, you know, their central power drained away. And same, same thing on the big banks. These are both sides of these poles that have become very well rewarded and very well entrenched by not doing that. So the people that actually do come over, uh, it's interesting. They're usually incredibly altruistic. So I really didn't understand that the synergy of this is not just a combination, it's really creating something completely new and different that is much more akin to a Cambrian explosion of activity where there, there's going to be a tr tremendous amount of experimentation and even understanding like how behavioral systems and economics work. You're getting to test real-time incentive systems with real money like launched immediately. So it's like wild stuff, but you can't really predict it. And we're still humans. I think for people that are approaching it, be patient. Don't be dogmatic in your approach to things because I'm hesitant to tell you what will happen next week. Um, anybody that's going to tell you about what's going to go on in a year, be, be wary. And if you really believe that what's better than trusting uh, somebody with your power, it is to not have to trust them at all. And if you could actually make the safe wielding of your own financial power um, and other types of power back to people, I really think that that will be of a great societal good. For Market Scale Tech, I'm Shelby Skirhawk. Thanks again, Shelby, for sourcing that story. And we've got that second interview on its way, but first up, let's fill you in on some industry news. A lot of great IoT applications to explore this time around. Sam Kingma, take it away. These are your software and education news minutes brought to you by Market Scale. Amazon, the popular online storefront, is planning to release around 3,000 cashier-free outlets by the year 2021 in the United States. Amazon is also looking at similar expansions of the physical-based stores in the UK as well. The intent of the cashierless store is having shoppers pick up goods and walk out of the store with whatever they bought cataloged and billed to their credit card. Currently, the cashierless shops are no bigger than your standard size 7-Eleven convenience store, but even with that size, they've felt some growing pains, like not being able to properly track product when the store gets busy. The IoT field has been used to solve many problems throughout its existence, but did you know that it could also be the solution to saving the bees? The startup company Apis Protect just raised about $1.8 million for bee monitoring sensors, which would allow beekeepers to directly track and prevent the loss of any honey and pollination production by the colony. Apis Protect is also working on ways to increase overall productivity in a hive through having healthier hives. The bee is responsible for about 30% of the Earth's food, which is why we've seen a massive increase in funding for projects to improve hive life. And finally, Nordex, a company known for its big wind turbines, has selected Software AG's Cumulosity IoT platform to manage their fleet of big wind turbines. 
Cumulosity IoT is an open, independent, and device agnostic platform which is fully distributed on the cloud. This would allow Nordex to manage and monitor their wind turbines remotely on a mass scale. Stefan Ewald, CIO of Nordex, said in an interview, being able to access the vast data set from our wind turbines globally in real time will enable us to generate new services and driver operational efficiency. Nordex has over 6,800 turbines and is responsible for delivering more than 23 gigawatts of sustainable wind energy per year to 80% of the world's energy market. This has been Sam Kingma, and these have been your Market Scale Software and Tech News Minutes. Our last feature takes it back to an interview we conducted in October with Zach Sharon, co-founder of Secret Sauce. He previously joined us on our Wildfire podcast, the B2B Under 30 Showcase, exploring his company and what motivated him to be a leader in the industry, empowering other young professionals to enter the tech world headstrong and prepared. For his second interview on MarketScale, Sharon explored an interesting topic, the tech exodus from Silicon Valley. Sounds dramatic, but really, it is as dramatic as it sounds. Investors in the Valley are increasingly putting their funds in startups outside of the Bay Area, and cost of living is driving more young companies to relocate in areas more suited for their growing businesses. MarketScale host Sam Mosier got Sharon's take on the dispersing of the industry and why that's a good thing for young professionals. So for those who may not know you and your company, let's start with what you do at Secret Sauce. Yeah, so Secret Sauce uh, was created really to help bridge the gap between college students and recent grads who wanted to break into the tech space uh, but weren't really sure how to do it. Um, Kind of throughout college, a lot of my friends and just people I knew were always kind of asking me like, oh, how did you get involved in tech? You know, I've heard a lot about how nice it is to work at startups and, you know, all the cool stuff going on, whether it be the different apps on my phone or, you know, video games or there's all these things that are so kind of integral to the college experience or things like that that revolve around tech. So we kind of wanted to help um, bring people closer into tech and help make that path a lot more clear um, for the people who were interested in doing so. So could you give an example of this process, how the quiz leads to the profile, which leads to the right path to take after college? Yeah, definitely. Um, So imagine you're, you know, a sophomore or junior uh, in college. That's kind of where we want to start because we really believe um, getting meaningful internship experience makes the whole process um, a lot better. Just going into that first entry level job, if you have some meaningful internship experience, it makes a world of difference. Um, that aside, so you're a sophomore or junior, you'll get our newsletter or you'll, you know, see one of our campus reps on campus who's, you know, talking about how to get a job, whether it's in the middle of your class or whatnot. So you'll be navigated to our website or to one of our events on campus. Uh, In the event or in the newsletter, you'll kind of take this assessment and you'll find, usually what we find is that students have a primary Uh, profile and kind of a secondary one. So you'll get that. And then especially in the workshops, what we do is we bring in different um, people from the tech industry, from different companies, from different roles to kind of talk about what a day in a life of that role may be. Um, So to give you an example, you know, you may find that you are the influencer 
personality type. So you may be in a um, workshop of ours and you know, a sales coordinator or a director of sales from our local tech company will come in and he or she will tell you about what you know, a day at work looks like for them, kind of the parts that they like the most, the most challenging parts for them. You know, we ask a lot about what have been you know, some of the most meaningful projects they work on. Um, so you'll be a student and you'll be sitting there and you'll kind of be able to align what you enjoy and what you find fulfillment in, in hopefully what some of the you know, younger employees at tech companies kind of bring to these workshops. So you'll say like, oh, I, I think I would have enjoyed working on a project like that. Or, oh, that cold calling, you know, all day doesn't really sound up my alley. I want to kind of steer away from maybe going into sales. So we, we want to bring in very like tangible examples of people working in those different roles so students can kind of go through and hear a lot about what it's like to work in each of those shoes. But what are the challenges for these startups in finding students? I would imagine it's much harder for them compared to bigger companies like those you listen in Silicon Valley. Yeah, and you know, that is a core part of Secret Sauce's origin story. So Brendan, my co-founder, uh, was a hiring manager at the startup that we worked at together. He actually hired me as an intern out of college. And <laughs> lucky, lucky for me, we're still working together to this day. But you know, he saw really firsthand how hard it can be for a startup to to bring people on. You know, he was in in charge of a, a new team, and I think he had to grow the team from something like two people to. 10 people in, in a very short amount of time and just the resources that are available to you as a as someone like Brendan at a, a startup just they're not they're not always there so that was kind of always in the back of his mind and you know after the startup was acquired and working at Amazon and eventually getting to where we are now it it was an important thing that we saw that we felt we could fix was kind of giving startups the tools to um, bring on more entry-level talent and more interns. And a big part of that for us is helping more college kids feel like they can work in tech. There's this notion that you have to be technical to work in tech. There's this notion that you need to know how to code or you have to have already designed your own app and all these you know, kind of preconceived notions of what it means to go and work in tech. And by breaking down those barriers that are just kind of notions really more than anything by being on campus and sending out this newsletter and encouraging kids no matter your your degree or your background there there is likely a role at a tech company for you and then going to these startups and saying you know hey we have a a pool of diverse motivated students who want to get into the industry and working together with those companies to get an idea of who they're looking for in a given position and, and connecting them with, with this pool of students that we're working with. So how do you go about talking to these startups and telling them the advantages of working with students rather than looking toward more experienced people in the tech industry? Yeah, that that's an awesome question. And to give you a very recent example, um, last Wednesday, Brendan and I, maybe it was Thursday, anyways, Brendan and I were at Tech Day LA, which was this conference in Los Angeles. You know, there were, I think, 200 or so startups all tabling there. And we kind of went from table to table, explained what we were doing. And some companies would say, 
you know, we don't feel that we're ready to start bringing on entry-level talent. You know, we don't have enough uh, senior-level experience. We don't have enough kind of management experience at the company where we'd feel comfortable bringing on younger talent. And to, to those people, we, that's awesome. We don't want companies that don't feel like they're ready to bring on interns or ready to bring on entry-level talent because they don't have the experienced leadership yet. That, that's a good thing. We, we don't want kids thrown into the fire without guidance. A, a huge part of, of working in tech is, is mentorship and being able to learn from the people who you work with and who have been working uh, at the company or in the sector, in the industry longer than you have. But on the, on the flip side, a lot of the companies talk, we talked to were, it was more of just kind of like a, a campus presence issue. You know, startups, your head pedal to the metal, you know, head to the grindstone. You don't really have time to be on campus talking about what your company does and the positions it's hiring for. You don't really have the time to really be pouring through all the resumes that you get through the different job boards or to be, you know, engaging with potential candidates um, on social media and things like that. So to those companies, we say, you know, we're, we are messaging and interacting with college students on a daily basis. We're working at all these different campuses. We're on these campuses. We're, we're in these workshops and things like that. And we can provide your company or your recruiters or whoever it is to represent you, you know, time in front of these students um, that's outside of the work, typical workday, that's outside of the typical time constraints that might prevent you from, from being there. So we, we really want to create unique opportunities for these companies to get in front of students the same way we're creating opportunities for the students to get in front of these companies. Right. So to bring this conversation sort of full circle, recruitment in tech sounds so stressful between the companies that range from these huge corporations to startups and then the universities that range from prestigious tech schools to smaller art schools. It's a it's a huge undertaking. And that's what makes Secret Sauce so exciting. You're making recruitment more personal and making it easier for college students to comfortably enter the tech industry. Exactly. I, I think really what we're trying to do is make what currently feels like a very impersonal process that is applying for a job feel like a very personal process. And, you know, with very clearly kind of defined steps to take and people to interact with, to learn from, to understand what they do and to, you know, connect with these companies. And really, we want people going into these companies, understanding what the company does and believing in the company's mission. And we just think that'll power a lot of small companies to accomplish great things. Absolutely. Well, Zach, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure talking to you about how tech is changing and how recruitment can change as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to be back. And as you guys know, if there's ever anything else I can do for you, I'm happy to help. Of course, it would be our pleasure to have you on again, as always. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. You as well. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's software and technology podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Sam Mosier. Thank you for listening.
All right, everyone, that does it for today's episode of the Market Scale Software and Technology Podcast Show. Hope you enjoyed some of this really powerful content. I mean, we got people like Rain, who has almost two decades worth of experience in the industry. We also have Nick Freud, who's just starting out with his company in the industry. It's great to see both sides. take passion and initiative to start something new and to take a risk. And really, that's what it's all about in software and technology. It's all about taking risks and all about tossing it up to the wind with headstrong ideas, with innovative solutions, and um, seeing what becomes of it. Some investors might help, too. All right, everyone. So thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you, too. If you think you have a story that would be great for our podcast or you yourself would make for a good thought leader, pitch it my way. Shoot me an email at daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Again, daniel.litwin, L-I-T-W-I-N at marketscale.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. And if you'd like to hear previous episodes or listen to some of our other content, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.